Hello and welcome to Sorceress, a fountaining podcast. This is Nandini Krishnan and I will be hosting a fortnightly podcast titled Sorceress, where we talk books and authors and translators who are also really authors. So, of course, the first thing everyone wants to know is what is Sorceress? And it's kind of hard to explain or describe except as the sound of pages rustling or of whispers in the ear or of the wind teasing leaves on trees and it's a word i learned from one of my favorite books about 14 years ago but i'll come to that shortly so in this show we will speak about specific books books that have affected me perhaps or books whose writers have made their mark on the world or who should have or would have left a far larger footprint if only they'd been translated we will also have guests on the show authors and poets and performers uh, talking about their work the first episode of this podcast has been inspired by a life lived um, across many literatures a voice that carried many voices one of the century's most iconic translators edith grossman in fact given the popularity of her translation of miguel de cervantes's don quixote one might call her one of history's most iconic translators she is perhaps best known for being what gabriel garcia marquez himself called his voice in english the opening sentence of love in the time of cholera which has passed into the canon of great first lines was penned by her and goes it was inevitable the scent of bitter almonds always reminded him of the fate of unrequited love you know what this was actually not one of my favorite books uh, by marquez i found it deeply disturbing but not really good disturbing um maybe of love and other demons is a book i would call good disturbing marquez to me is 100 years of solitude It was the book that first made me feel I had read all there really was to read in the world. Like if this was the last book I read ever, it would be a good way to go. I could die happy. It was only when I read the obituaries on Edith Grossman that it struck me that I had never really thought about the translator for as long as his or her name was not on the cover. It was Grossman who first put forward the idea of the translator as a person um, and not an invisible medium. as someone with a craft someone who ought to be given credit someone whom the publishers needed because in her words translations are not written by waving a magic wand it turns out that the edition of 100 years of solitude that i do have was not translated by grossman but by gregory rabassa his name appears in tiny font on one of the inside pages there is no bio And yet it turns out Marquez waited 3 years for Abasa to be able to take on the English translation and eventually declared it to be superior to the Spanish version. So for this inaugural podcast, I thought I would look at books from other languages uh, that have particularly moved me or left an impression of some sort and their translators. And I'm going to read the ending of this novel 100 Years of Solitude. It's no spoiler because you won't understand a thing until you read the entire novel. But to me, 
This is one of the most intoxicating sections of the novel. Perhaps what made Marquez declare that it was better than the original. Fascinated by the discovery, Aureliano read aloud without skipping the chanted encyclicals that Melchiades himself had made Arcadio listen to and that were in reality the prediction of his execution. And he found the announcement of the birth of the most beautiful woman in the world who was rising up to heaven in body and soul. And he found the origin of the posthumous twins who gave up deciphering the parchment, not simply through incapacity and lack of tribe, but also because their attempts were premature. At that point, impatient to know his own origin, Aureliano skipped ahead. Then the wind began, warm, incipient, full of voices from the past, the murmurs of ancient geraniums, sighs of disenchantment that preceded the most tenacious nostalgia. He did not notice it because at that moment he was discovering the first indications of his own being in a lascivious grandfather who let himself be frivolously dragged across a hallucinated plateau in search of a beautiful woman who would not make him happy. Aureliano recognized him. He pursued the hidden parts of his descent, and he found the instant of his own conception among the scorpions and the yellow butterflies. In a sunset bathroom where a mechanic satisfied his lust on a woman who was giving herself out of rebellion, he was so absorbed that he did not feel the second surge of wind either, as its cyclonic strength tore the doors and windows off their hinges, pulled off the roof of the east wing and uprooted the foundations. Only then did he discover that Amarantha Ursula was not his sister but his aunt, and that Sir Francis Drake had attacked Riohacha only so that they could seek each other through the most intricate labyrinths of blood until they would engender the mythological animal that was to bring the line to an end. Makondo was already a fearful whirlwind of dust and rubble being spun about by the wrath of the biblical hurricane when Aureliano skipped 11 pages so as not to lose time with facts he knew only too well and he began to decipher the instance that he himself was living, deciphering it as he lived it, prophesying himself in the act of deciphering the last page of the parchments, as if he were looking into a speaking mirror. Then he skipped again to anticipate the predictions and ascertain the dates and circumstances of his death. Before reaching the final line, however, he had already understood that he would never leave that room for it was foreseen that the city of mirrors or mirages would be wiped out by the wind and exiled from the memory of men at the precise moment when Aureliano Babylonia would finish deciphering the parchments and that everything written on them was unrepeatable since time immemorial and forevermore because races condemned to 100 years of solitude did not have a second opportunity on earth. Isn't that something? I mean, who would think that it wasn't originally written in English, right? And I think that's why when people say, oh, imagine if it was this good in English, how good must the original be? I do have a problem with that because I don't think um, language is something which is a barrier because we all have the same emotions or similar emotions as human beings, right? Like we all have the same spectrum of emotions and I think every language has its own unique ways of capturing that or aspects of that. And so there's no reason why a translation should not be better than the original.
So the second one on my list is the work from which I learned the word sorceress. My name is read by Orhan Pamuk. So one of his translators, Maureen Freely, is a very well-known name. In fact, uh, the notion propagated by some of his Turkish readers that uh, she is in fact responsible for making his books what they are, that she makes them better than they are in the original, began to gain currency, particularly after his Nobel Prize win, right? And it has even become a prickly question for Pamuk at some events, notably at his appearance in India at the Jaipur Literature Festival. However, Pamuk has had several translators, of whom at least two are of Turkish origin. Some of his most recent books have been translated by Ekin Oklap. And uh, the translation that I read of the iconic My Name is Red, which of course I didn't think about back then, uh, because like I said, the translator's name is not on the cover and I wasn't really thinking about who had rendered him in English. Uh, now that translator is Erdag M. Gurknar. And I realized that Gurknar has been singled out for praise by John Updike for the fluidity of his language and for the way he has adapted the grammar of a completely incompatible language to suit English. So to me, uh, this translation is also notable for the role it plays as a cultural carrier. Along with the English words Sorceress, I learned a few Turkish words. I think the most prominent of these was Efendi which was apparently an address that shows great respect in the Ottoman Empire. Gurknar, it turns out, is a poet in his own right, along with being a literary scholar and translator. And I'm going to read the first paragraph of My Name is Red for you. Chapter 1 is titled, memorably, I am a corpse. I am nothing but a corpse now, a body at the bottom of a well. Though I drew my last breath long ago and my heart has stopped beating, no one apart from that vile murderer knows what's happened to me. As for that wretch, he felt for my pulse and listened for my breath to be sure I was dead, then kicked me in the midriff, carried me to the edge of the well, raised me up and dropped me below. As I fell, my head, which he'd smashed up with stone, broke apart. My face, my forehead and cheeks were crushed, my bones shattered and my mouth filled with blood. For nearly four days I have been missing. My wife and children must be searching for me. My daughter, spent from crying, must be staring fretfully at the courtyard gate. Yes, I know they are all at the window, hoping for my return. But are they truly waiting? I can't even be sure of that. Maybe they've gotten used to my absence. How dismal. From here, on the other side, one gets the feeling that one's former life persists. Before my birth, there was infinite time. And after my death, inexhaustible time. I never thought of it before. I'd been living luminously between two eternities of darkness. The third and final novel that I have here is one that I bought because I liked the cover and the name, the title of the book, which was The Yakubian Building. Back then, I had not heard of Allah Laswani. I was in my late teens and had hardly ventured outside the canon of literature, which at that time, um, Allah Laswani did not occupy. It was only his second novel, and I think his translator, Humphrey T. Davies, was perhaps more famous, at least in Arab literary circles, than the author was. 
But this novel would catapult the author to fame and win the translator several awards and honors. I think one of the reasons this translation stands out for me is that it was unlike early translations of most works of Arabic literature, uh, notably the works of uh, Bibi Nagib Mehfuz. It was handled by a single person who knew the country in which the novel was set and had lived there for decades and who was also adept at carrying just that little flavor of the original language into the translation, which you'll, you'll know what I mean when I read. But, you know, just to give you some context, um, like Nagir Mehfuz, the Nobel Prize winner, was actually his early works were translated by teams. So there would be some people who, uh, maybe Egyptian people who would translate from the Arabic into English. And then, of course, there would be teams of uh, native English speakers, right, which is basically code for white, um, because there's no way English can be your first language if you're not white. So uh, these speakers would translate their English, the English of the natives, uh, the non-English speakers into English that could be consumed by the Western world. So yeah, I guess it's that colonizer's mentality which persists often in translation even now where, you know, um, irrespective of how well you write English, where you are is always given more prominence and you will find authors of uh, who, from Asia or Africa, countries that have been colonized for hundreds of years by uh, England, um, being asked, so why don't you write in your own language, right? Anyway, that aside, uh, let's move on to the actual translation. Chapter 1 goes, The distance between Bela Passage, where Zaki Bail Desuki lives, and his office in the Yakubian building is not more than a hundred meters, but it takes him an hour to cover it each morning, as he is obliged to greet his friends on the street. Clothing and shoe store owners, their employees of both sexes, waiters, cinema staff, habitués of the Brazilian coffee stores, even doorkeepers, shoe shine men, beggars and traffic cops. Zaki Bey knows them all by name and exchanges greetings and news with them. Zaki Bey is one of the oldest residents of Suleiman Basha Street to which he came in the late 1940s after his return from his studies in France and which he has never thereafter left. To the residents of the street, he cuts a well-loved, folkloric figure when he appears before them in his three-piece suit. Winter and summer, its bagginess hiding his tiny, emaciated body. With his carefully ironed handkerchief, always dangling from his jacket pocket and always of the same colour as his tie, with his celebrated cigar, which in his glory days was Cuban Deluxe, but is now of the foul-smelling, tightly-packed, low-quality local kind. And with his old, wrinkled face, its thick glasses, his gleaming false teeth, and his dyed black hair, whose few locks are arranged in rows from the leftmost to the rightmost side of his head, in the hope of covering the broad, naked, bald patch. In brief, Zakibe Eldesuki is something of a legend. As a translator myself, I'm often torn between retaining original words and translating entirely as if the original were English, like as if the book had been written originally in English. I tend to prefer the former style um, and it is often a subject of conversation with other translators. So I'd like to know what you think. 
Um, do write in to me at the email address feedback at fountaininc.in. That's F E E D B A C K at F O U N T A I N I N K dot I N. Of course, I'm happy to hear back from you about uh, this episode and requests for future episodes if you may have any. So I'll sign off now. I do hope you pick up one or more of these three works or other works by these three translators or writers. I'll see you in a fortnight.